Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our reading today is from the third chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 14. You may locate these texts in your pew Bible on page 934. First, let us prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Startle us, O God. Startle us out of our everyday routine and into your presence. Startle us with your word of grace and open our hearts so that we may receive it. Amen. In the 15th year of the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ichturia, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, hmm, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none and whoever has food must do likewise. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. So in this series, we've been reflect, reflecting on character. And as we said last week, life gets a little messy sometimes. It gets complicated, and 
When it does, character becomes all the more important. That's one way to think about the trajectory of this sermon series. In a world that is so often captured by suspicion when basic values of honesty and humility are disregarded, when practices of loving neighbor and being gracious to the stranger are ignored, we need character. We need some grown-ups. And that takes courage. And I can only imagine the courage that was required for Jesus himself as he neared Jerusalem, knowing that his lonely death was waiting for him. It takes courage to be a person of character in the world. And I don't think that courage can be sustained unless we have hope. I think hope is an essential ingredient for character. And of course, hope itself is not that easy to maintain because the harsh march of life can erode our hope. Angie Thomas's novel, The Hate You Give, is the story of 17-year-old Star Carter, a girl from an impoverished, impoverished black neighborhood. She's in a car that's stopped by the police, and in that encounter, her friend Khalil is shot and killed. In her grief and rage, she erupts. I've seen it happen over and over again, she said. A black person gets killed simply for being black. I've tweeted RIP hashtags, reblogged pictures on Tumblr, and signed every petition out there. I always said that if I saw it happen to somebody, I would have the loudest voice making sure the whole world knew what went down. Now I am that person, she said, and I am too afraid to speak. By her telling, she thinks she has lost her courage, but I wonder if it's deeper than that. I wonder if it is hope that has actually eroded. Hope is hard to maintain because the world is a mess. Live long enough and you'll get disappointed. The world will disappoint you and it'll call into question whatever reason you think you have for hope. But the harder truth, the harder reality is hope is difficult to maintain not simply because the world out there is a mess, but because we're a bit of a mess ourselves at times. Any degree of self-awareness, and we know this, one, one of the basic theological teachings is that human beings are sinful. Uh, I reminded you in a sermon last fall, some of the voices in our Reformed tradition, in our theological family, have described the condition of sin as total depravity. Wow, total depravity. Sounds bad. This is not a sermon you preach on Mother's Day or Christmas Eve. It just doesn't go, right? But here's the thing. Total depravity does not mean that human beings are devoid of goodness. No, that's ridiculous. We see goodness, generous goodness around us all the time. 
What total depravity means is we're never purely good. That the stain of sin leaves no deed untouched. That we never fully escape our selfishness. We fall short. Francis Spufford says, wherever the line is drawn between good and evil, we are always walking on both sides of that line and not by accident. Spufford says it is our active inclination to break stuff, moods, promises, relationships we care about. We have a consistent inclination to mess stuff up. So even when we're trying to do good, there are unintended consequences. There are complications. Total depravity doesn't mean there's no good. It means there's no pure good. If you have ever engaged in a home improvement project, you've had firsthand experience with total depravity. It never goes the way it's supposed to go. It always involves more trips to Home Depot than you had counted on. We had this sweet little old octagonal window in, in our house. It was an old window, just single pane, and, and some of the wood trim on the outside of the house had rotted. So I got my tool belt, which always makes Carol just a little bit nervous. I got, I got my tool belt, and I assured her this was no problem, just going to pop out that rotted wood, mill a piece to replace it, pop it back in there, a little paint and caulk, and we're done. It's presto new good is new so I did that I removed the rotted wood I milled a piece of it I put it back in there it was all perfect just one more tap of the hammer and I did that and the window split cracked well I didn't have time to fix the glass that day so I, I said I will do it when I as soon as I can get to it which was 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 five years and so <laughs> So we got, we got, we, and I may be being generous to myself at that, but we, uh, we finally got the nice little piece of glass and, and we took out the trim and put the glass in and it fit perfectly, but in removing the trim, some of that had decayed and right, so we needed to get more trim and re redo that. And so the good, news, the good news is this simple project, after multiple trips to the glass store and Home Depot, this simple project is just five years later is finished. Total depravity. Even when we're trying to do good, there can be unintended consequences, complications. Life never goes as smoothly as we anticipate or desire because nothing completely escapes the realities of sin. And when we bumble along enough, it can erode our conviction of hope. And oddly, surprisingly, John the Baptist is the guy we need in that moment. Because John the Baptist's whole life was shaped by hope. He could taste it. It was in every word he preached, every action, every relationship. He died for hope. 
There in the midst of life's messiness, John proclaims, repent. Now, don't get defensive or nervous about it. It's a good word. Repent literally means to turn around, to go in a different direction. It's important because, well, as we've said, we mess it up sometimes, and we need to turn things around. It was 12, 14 years ago, I think, my lovely wife Carol looked at me and she said, you know, I've been thinking there are some wonderful things about you, Tom R. And I said, gosh, thanks, babe. And she said, and I'm working really hard to pay attention to those wonderful things. Because if I don't keep those clearly in focus, some other things about you might drive me crazy. I said, huh, total depravity. Repentance is needed because all of us have those other things. We have a burden we can't let go of. We have an injury we can't shake. We have a habit we can't break. We have a practice that dehumanizes us and others. There's not a one of us that doesn't have parts of our life that need redemption. So don't miss this. Repentance may be the most hopeful word in Scripture. John and then Jesus after him both preached repent because they trusted that things can change, that we can change, that tomorrow doesn't have to be yesterday lived all over again. It can actually be a new day. Now, lest I confuse you, John is no commencement speaker. You know, one of those that'll tell you the world is your oyster, that, that there's no barrier you can't overcome, that if you really believe, you can fly. No, he's not that Pollyanna. John knows that sin is real. But John also knows that the love of God is a power. And that is the basis for John's hope. That the love of God can show up in our lives as power. And when he told everybody that, the response was universal. What do we do, they asked him. The crowds asked him, what do we do? He said, well, if you got two coats, share one. Tax collectors asked him, what do we do? He said, don't collect any more tax than is owed. Soldiers ask him, he said, don't abuse your power, don't intimidate or threaten people. Look, th this is not hard, actually. What's remarkable is it's kind of hard to tell a lot of difference between the prophet John the Baptist and your kindergarten teacher. Your kindergarten teacher taught you this stuff. If you have to share, play fair, don't hit people. Be kind. It's that kind of thing. And it's in that, those kinds of practices 
that John says the power of God's love can show up. That is the basis for our hope. He doesn't promise that it will change everything. Tomorrow, like yesterday, will carry its own share of heartbreak and disappointment. Our repentance doesn't mean everything in us or in the world is all of a sudden going to be good. Repentance is not about success. It's about character. It is about who we choose to be when we're not in control of everything. It's about who we choose to be when we're not sure we're going to win and we're pretty sure we might lose. It's about who we choose to be when we know we're in the shadow of the cross. Character is what you choose when you're not in control. And character is an expression of our hope. It is the intention to choose the good that is ours to choose. And when we do, the love of God shows up. At least that's what Tom Charles told us. Tom Charles is an elder in the Nassau Presbyterian Church in Princeton, New Jersey, and I heard him speak at a next church conference several years ago. He said at Nassau Church, he participates in their refugee resettlement program. They have one of those at his church. He had coordinated the resettlement of six refugee families. The most recent one, he told us, were Sunni Muslims from Syria. Thomas soft-spoken, didn't want to talk to our group. He was nervous. He, he's a retired banker, said he got his MBA from University of Delaware. He said the refugees he knows have come from dangerous places, have spent years in refugee camps and years being vetted. And when they showed up in Princeton, he said they had a few clothes and a lot of bad memories. Tom told us this program, this engagement with the stranger, gave him reason for hope. He said the truth is working with them was the antidote to his fear of stranger. Relationship is the antidote to exclusion. He choked up when he told us that it was both the most faithful thing as a Christian and the most patriotic thing as an American he's ever done was to welcome the stranger. When we choose the good in front of us, the love of God shows up. There is so much that is beyond our control. There's so much that we cannot repair that it can be enough to erode your hope. But choose the good that is in front of you, as imperfect as it may be, and the love of God will show up. Maddie Rigsby is a grandmother in Clyde Edgerton's novel, Walking Across Egypt. 
She was in church, and they read the parable of the sheep and the goats, you know, the one about the least of these. And she decided she didn't know anybody who would probably be some of Jesus' best friends, the least of these. And so she changed that. She befriends Wesley. Wesley is a teenager with a record. She meets him down at Juvie, she says, but she started calling it the RC, the Rehabilitation Center They began a rather unusual friendship. One Sunday at lunch, Maddie's adult son, Robert, asked, Mama, I need to ask you something. Okay, she said. Are you doing all right? She said, I'm I'm fine, son. I'm fine. I'm just a little worried about Wesley down at the RC. I feel sorry for him. Robert said, well, that boy doesn't feel sorry for you. She said, now, how do you know that? Well, well, he's a thief. He's a criminal. He's a juvenile delinquent. That's the place he ought to be. Well, he's never had a chance to hear the gospel, she said. He said, oh, fooey, mama. He said, as much chance as anybody. They probably got Gideon's Bibles all over that RC. She said, no, what I mean is... Nobody really loved him. Well, if, he, if they did, he probably stole their car. <laughs> Robert, the Gospel of Matthew says, Mother, I know what the Gospel of Matthew says. No, you don't. Not in a long time. The Gospel of Matthew says, Whatsoever you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. And Wesley is certainly one of the least of these, my brethren, she says. Mama, but you've done for him. You've done for him over and over. I don't know what you've done for him. Doesn't the Bible ever tell you when to stop? No. Not as far as I know, she said. You know, for... 70 years we've been showing up here we've been showing up here trying to do the good that is ours to do not because we're perfect long from that but we keep showing up because we know that together there's good we're supposed to do And I don't know in 70 more years how much folks are going to be able to tell. But I know for us, it's our calling. It's what we're to be about because we're surrounded by people who are afraid and they need somebody to love them. And we're surrounded by people who are ashamed and they need some folks to tell them they're going to be okay. And Lord knows we're surrounded by people who have lost their hope. At least they're acting like they've lost their hope. And they need some people of character to show them what hope looks like. So keep on doing what you do. Stand tall. Remember the simple virtues of honesty and humility. Share and Treat others fairly and don't hit people. Be kind. 
and gracious. And if you do, your hope is shaping your choices. And the promise is, when you do, the love of God shows up in power. It shows up in power. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.